I'm Trisha, and welcome to "Is It Recess Yet?" Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy, a podcast about my years as a teenage concert violinist and my quest to evolve beyond that identity. Follow me on my journey, and along the way, you'll get an insider's look into the classical music world and listen to conversations with innovative artists who are forging new and playful paths into creativity. So let's go, because I think I hear the recess bell. We act in this country very often like empathy is the only impetus toward moral action. It's important. But you don't have to feel what someone else feels to do the right thing. All you have to do is take what they're saying seriously, and I think that's a step we need to move to. Because you know, if we think that empathy is the only impetus toward moral action, then we put the burden of on people of color and other oppressed peoples to bear their pain to us before we'll do the right thing, <laughs> and it's not necessary. <laughs> My guest today is the Reverend Dean Maurice Charles. Dean Charles is the seventh dean of Rockefeller Memorial Chapel at the University of Chicago, where he provides spiritual care to all citizens of the university, facilitates interfaith conversation and cooperation, and supports music and the performing arts in Rockefeller and Bond chapels. He started his career as associate dean for religious life at Stanford University. Where he led religious services and the Explorations in Spirituality and Service summer internship program. Before returning to his alma mater, Dean Charles served as dean for spiritual engagement at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, where he also taught in the religious studies department. An Episcopal priest and historian of Christianity, Dean Charles is particularly concerned with questions regarding religion and violence. Having spent his childhood years in Cleveland, Ohio, during the turbulent 1960s, in his role as university chaplain, he is often called on to convene departments and other members of the community for reflection during times of local or national crisis. I am descended from、uh, clergy on both sides of the family, and at least on my mother's side of the family, I can trace. Those clergy back to plantations in Georgia every single generation, and sometimes、um, clergy in more than one generation, usually associated with、um, Southern forms of Christianity, so Baptist and Methodist. I was reared in church,、uh, Baptist church. My great uncle on my mother's side was the family pastor, and I had all of these、uh, relatives who had left the Jim Crow South, Georgia. Especially right around the time that Georgia elected a governor who was a known Klansman, so that prompted them to migrate north in the twenties. This is my, you know, my maternal side of the family. My maternal great grandfather, John Franklin Coleman, who was a listed in the old census records as a farmer and a minister, brought all of his kids. I think there were about thirteen of them total to Cleveland, and Marie Coleman. Married、um, her husband, whose last name was Holmes, and then my mother comes from that line, Horace Holmes and Marie Coleman, and Marie Coleman was the daughter of Frank. So I grew up with all these great aunts and uncles, and they were members of the church. So church and family were very closely connected to me. My father eventually became a minister as well, 
the church split and my uncle founded a second church and my father was actually called to be the pastor of the first church. (laughs) So both of them are in Cleveland. Both of them are still there. One is in inner city Cleveland and one is in suburban Cleveland, the second one that my great uncle founded. You know, I tell people that I'm incurably religious. Religion and culture are so closely related. The stories of survival of my family and my people are directly related to being on the plantations in the South. I mean, my father's side in Alabama, my mother's in Georgia, going out into the highways and byways and praying even when it wasn't safe to do so until finally some of our ancestors were liberated by uh, the Civil War. I now know that I have at least one ancestor who escaped and headed north prior to the Civil War. Mm. These stories about survival and faith and so on really make up um, the story of my heritage. At some point, right around the time when I was 12 years old, I felt like I had some kind of vocation to ministry, which made no sense to me because I wasn't, in my own mind, typical for a black clergy person. I am not loud. I'm an extrovert, but I'm constitutionally shy. I love classical music and spirituals. I'm uh, more of a thoughtful preacher. I love reading. I would rather write, in fact, than speak. So I didn't necessarily think that there would ever be a place for me. So I thought, well, I'll probably become a minister, but I'll do that on the side. When I was in college, when I started, I thought I was going to be a microbiologist. I love the sciences. When uh, eventually um, I shifted to the human sciences, because I find that um, human beings are actually stranger than microbes. You know, I always wondered what I would do with my love of microbiology. And now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and I'm reading every scientific paper I can get my hands on. I thought, oh, well, this this is useful. <laughs> I can do something with it. So it was really about my senior year when I thought by that time I was I was uh, studying psychology and sociology. And that's when I started seriously considering going to divinity school. My parents, especially my dad, warned me that um, I should not expect to work full-time as a minister. And he was actually right. I mean, it's very hard to find full-time work now as a, as a minister and be paid for it. You can find the work, you just can't find the pay. But I came to divinity school anyway and kind of fell into university chaplaincy. And that has been my paid career. I have done some parish ministry unpaid or half-time. But for the most part, I have been working as a university chaplain, which suits my temperament and my interests and my love of music and my love of reading and so on. For those of us who might not be super familiar with what a chaplain is and does, Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how that's different from being a parish minister? Or I was fascinated that you had gotten an undergrad degree in psychology, too. So that seems like it's certainly part of your work as a chaplain. Can you talk a little bit about that? In my role in particular, as a chaplain that is employed by the university, I'm to be available as a general resource to faculty, staff, and students, whether they identify as religious or spiritual or not. To be a person who's there in times of crisis and in times of celebration, um, celebration often happens to do with, you know, people wanting to get married and so on. Sometimes 
to a lesser degree, they may want some kind of celebration of their child's life. But during times of crisis, I will talk to individuals and convene the entire community for vigils and things of that sort. Lately, I've been spending a lot of time talking to departments across the university about the challenges that we're facing with the renewed recognition of racial inequities in this country and how it impacts entire communities. Most often, my public role in the university has been centered around, you know, in addition to leading services, if there is a chapel, has been centered around leading vigils. In fact, today is September 11th. And September 11th, 2001, I was gathering with my colleagues to lead the vigil to help the community process what happened. And I think about that every time this day rolls around. Um, I jokingly say that a chaplain's life is measured in votive candles because something is always happening. The community is always being traumatized, unfortunately. And the positive part of this role and the the vital part of this role is being able to bring a community together, help them name the situation, help them support each other, introduce them to resources across the campus, whether they are religious or spiritual or not. I work very closely with the, the counseling center. We do lots of referrals. Sometimes a student comes to me with a spiritual crisis And it's very clear to me that they could use some additional psychological help and coaching. And so I'll refer them to the counseling center, sometimes walk them over. And a lot of times folks will go to the counseling center and start talking about God and spirituality, and they refer them to us because that's that's really not their focus. I have done some teaching in the past. I'm a historian of Christianity. I focus on the early modern period, but I have a general interest in religion and violence. So in my last role, I had a faculty appointment as well in the Religious Studies Department at Hobart and Williamsmith Colleges. And I would anticipate at some point um, doing some teaching in the Divinity School here, which is where I went to Divinity School, (laughs) either in the ministry program or if there are some other courses that they're, they're interested in my teaching over there, then I may do that as well. Typically here at the at the University of Chicago, the dean of the chapel has held some kind of faculty appointment in the Divinity School. Whether they started out as a faculty member in the Divinity School and then were hired to be the dean of the chapel, or if they were given a courtesy appointment later because they were offering courses. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what it means to you to return to the University of Chicago in this role after having been a student. It's been fascinating. Because this is such a high-powered, intense, um, it's probably the most intellectually intense place I've ever studied or worked. Because it's such an intense place, because it is so prominent and visible, it shares that in common with Stanford, where I started in this kind of work. I'm glad that I'm coming back as the first African-American in this role, already having a connection to the university. I don't have to prove to anyone why I should be here. My PhD is from right here. I already proved myself as a graduate student during two different phases of my life. Hyde Park is like a big, small town in many ways. It's like a small town in the middle of a major city. There are people who have been here forever. So there are people that I have known since I was in my 20s, including the 
former dean of the chapel who's now 90 years old. We just celebrated his birthday. He and uh, Bernie Brown and his wife, Laura Jean, show up to Sunday services when we're having Sunday services. And there are lots of folks in the neighborhood that I know. I know a lot of the folks who are at St. Paul Redeemer Episcopal Church. That was the church that sponsored me for ordination. So I think especially because people in this university are not necessarily accustomed to seeing especially Black men in any prominent positions for very long. It has been um, an advantage for me to already know the community and to already understand the culture, not to be surprised by the focus on the life of the mind, which here, you know, starts at the neck and goes upward <laughs> and include the body at all. Not to be surprised with the discomfort that some, not all and not even the majority, but the discomfort that some in the community might have interacting with an African-American male, because part of the strange dynamic of being in Hyde Park is that um, most of the, or not most, but well, it probably is the case that it is still the case that most of the people of color who are in Hyde Park, especially African-Americans and Latinos who work at the university are in some kind of service job. And so people experience, um, especially Blacks and Latinos in that way, and many of them have a kind of mythic fear of Black males in the surrounding neighborhood because we do have, we do have a gang problem here in Chicago. And all you need is one story of someone being mugged and... You know, then then people say, okay, that's what they are all like. And if you have people on the campus who don't ordinarily have cross-racial friendships, they are going to view everyone they see on the campus through the lens of their worst encounter or the worst encounter that they've heard about. So I would not want have wanted to walk into this environment without having a connection to the community already, without knowing that, being accustomed to it. A lot has changed. Um, the university is paying more attention to the surrounding neighborhoods than I can remember. And I, I left as late as 2013 when I did finish my Ph.D. And there are some tremendous changes since then. I think changes for the better. A lot hasn't changed. Um, in some ways, you know, this is a scrappy university and, <laughs> you know, administrative systems that I would think would work and decision making that I would think would be clear isn't necessarily and it's kind of messy and, and so on. And so uh, some of those things haven't changed. The, the brilliance and quirkiness of the students and the faculty hasn't changed, which is wonderful for me because I felt like I fit right in. You know, you can be an outlier and, and be normal here. <laughs> It is very interesting to be here during this time. Hardly a day goes by when I don't feel like I have had at least two or three meaningful conversations. Sometimes the work is too meaningful these days. But to walk in the door thinking to myself, you know, there is an opportunity here to connect the chapel and to connect what I do with the surrounding community. Wouldn't it be a great idea if, and then suddenly to have the world erupt in the way that it has. I am now doing in my first year what I thought would take years. I am now having conversations that I thought would take at least three years to have, maybe with a conversation series inviting people in from the outside who think about these issues. 
So it is it is very interesting to be in a place, and when by and I say place, it's not just the university, but Chicago is a challenging place to be a black male. And I knew that moving back here as much as I absolutely love the city. I love the architecture. I love the pulse of the city, everything about it. My first challenges dealing with any police departments were here in Chicago. And for that to suddenly erupt on the national scene and for me to, on the one hand, have some confirmation that we have a serious problem with policing and communities of color, that it's, that I'm not just being paranoid. On the one hand, that's satisfying. On the other hand, that makes the work that much more intense because I feel certain things personally and I'm in a role where people have some expectation that something that I do has to do with healing. And it's interesting to be in a position very often where I find myself saying, it's too soon to talk about healing and reconciliation. We have to talk about truth first. And especially for that reason, I'm glad that I have the deep connections that I have to the neighborhood and to the university because I think those long-standing connections give me a kind of credibility that I would not have if I were a newcomer. Because the excuse is always, oh, well, you know, it's not really this way. You don't know us. Well, I, I just celebrated my 30th uh, reunion from the Divinity School the first time around. So, <laughs> so that, that in a nutshell is what it means to be back here. I mean, I feel like I got dropped into a situation not knowing what I was going to do. And feeling like I'm in the right place at the right time, but not always sure that I'm going to rise to the challenge. <laughs> and I, I feel like I won't know until I look at the situation in retrospect, whether in, in fact I rose to the challenge. You had mentioned that your area of scholarly interests or one of them is religion and violence. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that, even if it's in the guise of what you hope to offer, even academically? My interest in religion and violence really comes out of my experience as a child. I was born in Cleveland, or shall I say it? Well, I was born in 1963. 1965 was the year of the Watts riot in L.A. 1966 was the year of the Huff riot in Cleveland. 1967, which I remember vividly, Cleveland elected its first African-American mayor. 1968 was the year of the Glenville riots in Cleveland and across the country, 67, 68 especially. I grew up listening to the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr. on the black radio stations having those conversations with the family about whether or not we fully embraced pacifism, both in terms of international relations and in local movements. My family was one that sent money to the South, to Martin Luther King's movement, but did not participate because they were honest with themselves that they could not respond to violence in a nonviolent way. They were very clear about that. We like Martin Luther King. We think he's doing great work. He's doing important work. This is why we left the South. We will send our money through the church collections that were taken up on Sunday. In fact, it was my mother was just the most vocal about it and said, you know, if a cop swung at me, you know, I would take two down with me. I mean, she was just. <laughs> so that meant 
having seen what happened when a lot of the optimism of the early civil rights movement was waning and the black power movement was coming into ascendancy, especially in the North, but having grown up, you know, with kind of Southern Christianity, Southern black Christianity, that was the same Christianity that nurtured Martin Luther King and and the folks in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that environment caused me to question how I understood violence. What's the role of violence? Is there a real difference between violence and force, authorized force, or is that term authorized force just a fiction that legitimizes violence? Is there another way to restrain violence besides using guns and, and so on? Is there another way to react to it? And so I struggled lifelong secretly thinking to myself, I don't know that I'm a pacifist. My people were liberated by a brutal and bloody war. And I would like to believe it could have happened some other way in this country. But given what I increasingly know about this country, I don't think it could have happened another way. And it would not have happened when it did. So that's always been the kind of question that's kept me up at night. Where do I stand with that? And so when I returned to the University of Chicago the second time, I was very clear that I wanted to focus on issues of religion and violence, but I didn't know whether I wanted to do it as a historian or as a theologian. I had studied theology before I entered, thinking I was going to continue in theology and realized that I have more of a mind for history than I do for systematic and constructive theology. And settled on, quite by accident, the early modern period in Europe, which is a period of great religious turmoil and physical violence and heresy trials and so on. So I wrote my dissertation on the on the um, English Reformation and um, spent a lot of time reading Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and Cranmer and all of those folks and thinking also about um, how it was that religious communities were responding to the rapid changes in philosophy and metaphysics and theology and the understanding of political and religious power. So that's where my scholarship left off. But what was fueling all of that was my experience as an African-American in the United States. So I had a kind of unusual subspecialty of Black and Latin American liberation theology where those questions are still at the fore. And the last the last course that I taught was a survey course in liberation theologies, where you get to examine those questions, you know, and questions of oppression as well. Whether I'm thinking about early modern Europe, thinking about my own history and how my family fit in the various uh, Black movements in the 60s, where, you know, because some of some of the folks in my family are much more deeply rooted in, in Black Power and Malcolm X and so on. Others, you know, kind of very traditional King movements, some on the fence, like my own parents. Or I'm thinking about simply what it what it means to be a black man in the society who is available, nurtures, cares for his own community. The question of, of the religious response to violence the ethical ways of thinking about violence and force, questions about whether or not we can really trust just war theory to do its job, or is there something about the use of force that makes things like last resort or proportionality really impossible to achieve once the violence starts, once the bombs start to drop, once the bullets start to fly? Are we really 
even capable of restraining our own response to violence as we try to restrain violence. Do we have a moral obligation to use everything within our power to protect our communities? And I'm referring to black people too. You know, not just should we have a university police force, but should black people arm themselves? These are the kinds of questions that I think about. And no matter what I'm concentrating on at the moment, you know, I'm just going about my business. If there is such a thing as an ordinary day as a chaplain, but just kind of doing my ordinary job, those questions somehow make it to my door. And so even though I'm not at the moment, because I really just don't have the time engaged in any kind of scholarly work, right now I'm in the middle of those questions as we think about policing. Can we reform policing? Is community policing as effective as we say that it is? How does policing work in different neighborhoods? Um, What is the difference between this kind of warrior mentality that some police forces have taken upon themselves along with their weapons of war and body armor and so on and so forth. What's the difference between that and being a guardian of the community that is known in the community? Those questions are always at the center of my life and work. And like I said, they they make their way to my door time and time and time again. And I'm thinking about this even as we have protests across the country decrying police brutality on a day that we remember September 11th, which has its own dimensions of religiously supported violence. I know you're also a musician. You're a vocalist and a musician. And in addition to overseeing Rockefeller Chapel's spiritual life and connecting with the communities, as you've talked a little bit about around the university and in Chicago, You also oversee the chapel's music and arts programming. I'm curious what role do you think the arts play in community building and activism, especially as we're in this moment? As one of my dear friends says, you know, know, I don't want to have a a revolution if I can't dance. Um, So much of my earliest experience of, of religion and activism were, you know, those those protest songs from the civil rights movement, which were, which originated many of them as spirituals that were sung in the church. They weren't made up on the fly. They were already a part of the tradition. Sometimes the words were, were altered. So, um, so when I think of any kind of social movement because of how I was formed, I think of the importance of music. I think that music is important during social movements, especially because as an activist, one cannot live by rage alone. And I think that defiant joy keeps things moving for forward. I was watching a um, one of the uh, protests on Twitter that happened here in Chicago, and I saved the uh, the video of the protest because in the middle of all of the you know the marching and chanting and so on and so forth, one night a group of uh, young people, including some of our students who I recognized, were outside of one of the police stations line dancing. And they were just dancing. And it was such a beautiful thing. And and for me, coming from a tradition where you do line dancing at weddings and so on and so forth, that is the vision for me of beloved community. When I think of beloved community, what it looks like in a kind of mystical way. You know, if somebody said to me, describe heaven, I would say, well, it's line dancing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a community getting together at at the wedding and dancing together and you know, doing the same steps and moving, you know, as one body. So, it, you know, in that sense, I think that it uh, it presents an image to us of the kind of community that we're striving for. 
It also names community pain. So often what prompts activist moments, so often those things leave us mute. And that's usually the first response. And so we need the poets and the musicians to help us name our reality. Because once we can name that reality, we can situate it within a narrative and then we can understand our role in affecting that reality. When an individual experiences a trauma, the way that you get beyond simply being damaged, simply being caused by that trauma is being able to describe it, to discuss it, to narrate it and so on. In this unfortunate time when a lot of the musicians are unable to perform, where the Rockefeller organ is silent, where the choir cannot gather to sing, the fact of the matter is we need artists and musicians now more than ever because there is a way that music, whether it is whether it involves the spoken word or not, there is a way that music can open a kind of reality to us and open us to realities in ways that we simply can't do with mere prose. In fact, there's a certain level of, of pain and rupture that defies prose. And when a person finally is able to speak their language, um, Dorote Zola talks about this in Suffering, their language, she talks about it as psalmic language, that the first form of language that comes after the moaning and the groaning is this kind of really dense poetic language. And I think, you know, the same can be said for music. Um, the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel has this wonderful passage, and I wish I were closer to my bookshelf right now, I'd grab it. This wonderful uh, passage where, he, where he's talking about the vocation of the cantor. In fact, that's the name of the essay. Um, this is Rabbi Heschel, who was a friend of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, and he talks about music having a shattering quality. It allows the soul to have an encounter with reality that is beyond what we can have simply by mere cognition. As you mentioned earlier, you have been very generously coming and speaking uh, to departments in the university. And I was lucky enough to be in our Department of Music meeting when you came and spoke with us. And there's something that you had, well, many things that you had said. But one thing that I wanted to ask you about, you had talked about dancing on invisible walls and mm -hmm. how division in society can be intentional and used mm -hmm. as a way to benefit some over others. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, we have all sorts of divisions in the society that we don't like to name. We do not like to talk about class in the society, even though it is very, very, very real. And I don't even think that we're entirely honest, um, although I understand there's a very good book that has been written on the subject uh, very recently. We're not entirely honest about the degree to which we have a caste system in this country. But if you are a minoritized person, you are very much aware of the walls. They're everywhere. And what is uh, what can be so incredibly frustrating, or not only that, not only a minoritized person, but it depends on your gender as well. You can be aware of the barriers to access and to advancement, while at the same time being told by the people on the other side of those barriers that they don't exist. It's crazy making. It is absolutely crazy making. Yes. <laughs> the interesting thing about being the person who is called on at the time of death, 
which is universal, is that no matter what your um, social location is, you can enter spaces that you wouldn't ordinarily enter. You can enter into intimate settings that you would not ordinarily enter or be welcomed into because this particular group, this particular individual is dealing with a universal experience. This was driven home to me when a young man at Stanford unfortunately uh, lost his father to a corporate helicopter crash. That is a world I don't anticipate knowing. You know, unless, of course, my my, uh, daughter takes her MBA and goes in that direction and then takes me up in her corporate helicopter. But so far, she's not headed in that direction. (laughs) She'll probably be doing not-for-profit work. But that is a world that's entirely foreign to me. You know, I was an adult when I first started taking commercial flights. I grew up poor. We didn't fly anywhere. I don't think my mother's ever been on a plane. So this is is just a world, you know, it's like I, I can't even fathom, and especially at the time, I, you know, I couldn't even fathom that that would be an accident that one would have because I just didn't think about things like corporate jets or corporate helicopters. And yet I knew what death was. I knew what grief was. I knew what pain was. I knew what anguish was. And I was there in this very tender moment holding his hand as he dealt with the rawness of grieving his father. Shortly before I left, I ran into his mother again, or, you know, she made a point of coming to see me and saying, you know, you may not remember this, but you were there for my son. He's actually doing well for himself and and so on. And thank you so much for being there for him. This is probably not a family I would have interacted with under ordinary circumstances. When there is a global crisis like September 11th, when there's upheaval, when people are dealing with the some human experiences that are really quite ordinary, even though I have to qualify that with the fact that a bad day if you're poor is much worse than a bad day if you're wealthy. <laughs> I mean, I have to say that. So I, I don't want to I don't want to minimize the difference. But the fact of the matter is there is some kind of ground of experiencing, I think, that if we were more open to each other, we would we would really understand how just how universal some things are, you know, at their core, even though I know being in a very different place socioeconomically that when I have a bad day today, it's nothing like when I was a kid <laughs> because I don't have this constant threat of the house, you know, being foreclosed on or anything. You know, I just don't live with that anymore. But having said that, because of that, And because I'm in a role where I'm expected to encounter people wherever they are, I cross racial lines and social classes all the time. And I get a chance to see what happens when human beings forget about those barriers for a moment and they're just real. And seeing those kinds of responses, witnessing those moments where all of the BS that we think is important, all of the distinctions, the titles, the awards and everything else fall away. And you've got to decide what to do about this relative that you have on life support. And you've got to decide whether or not you're going to have the surgery. And you've got to decide how it is that you're going to muster the courage to live in spite of dealing with depression or a breakup that left you shattered. You know, it's like being able to transport oneself through a wall. 
I mean, it's an incredible experience because very often I'm aware of the walls that are there. And I'm very much aware that I wouldn't ordinarily be crossing them. Sometimes I'll run into them in the midst of doing the work. Now, I can, I can think of a, a situation where I had a lovely parishioner when I was, um, I was a graduate student and I was serving at a parish on the north side as a volunteer. And I still volunteer there from time to time. This is Church of the Atonement. And one of our much beloved parishioners, older Italian woman, was breathing her last, last breath in the hospital. And I went dressed in black from head to toe to give her last rites. And I was immediately stopped and lectured by the um, desk manager. You know, this is not, it's past visiting hours. I usually clergy are let in after visiting hours. <laughs> it's past visiting hours and, it's, and if you look at the side and so on and so forth, that was one of the rare occasions when the wall was there and it really should not have been. But I was able to break it down immediately. I took the communion kit, slammed it on the table and said, fine, there's a lovely Italian woman upstairs. You can give her last right. She will be so happy to see you. And he goes, okay, here's your pass. <laughs> and then I went on my way. But most of the time that doesn't happen. Most of the time I get to, as I said in, in that moment, walk through the walls or dance on the walls and see what's on the other side of the walls and recognize just how artificial they are and just how much better off we would be if we dismantled them. I had the great privilege of getting to talk to you after you came and talked to our department one-on-one. And there was something that you had said, a phrase you had used in our conversation that I wondered if you would talk about. And you had you had talked about oppression Olympics and it feels, yeah, yeah, it feels kind of related to what you're talking about walls, that they're constructs, that they're not really true. I was wondering if you could talk about what that means, oppression Olympics and why we ought to resist the urge to engage in it. And maybe already as you are, talk a little bit more about intersectionality, interconnectedness, how we're all really connected. Yes. Well, as you know, my uh, husband is Asian American. He's a Chinese American I can't remember whether it was father or his grandfather came here from China. I think it was his grandfather. And um, his mother grew up in Hawaii and this Chinese-American on both sides of the family. And we and as we've gotten to know each other, I think he's come to realize the degree to which our experience is different. When I, one day when I needed to drive somewhere and I think my car wasn't working or something. He said, take mine. I said, no, I can't take your car. And he says, why can't you take my car? And I said, well, because your, your tags are expired. And he says, well, so what? And I said, why do you want to get me killed? And he's like, what do you mean? Why do you want to get me killed? Why would it be a problem? He said, the police do not usually stop you, he said, for expired tags unless you do something wrong. And I said, no, the police will run my tags and stop me whether I've done something wrong or not. This was a, you know, quite a learning experience for him. And I think it was the first time really that we were both aware that we didn't experience that common experience in the same way. This is not something I go around obsessing about. You know, I don't wake up in the morning, though. As I used to tell my friends when I was a graduate student here, I don't wake up in the morning looking in the mirror and go, oh, my God, another day of being black. I mean, I happen to like being black. I like everything that goes with it. I like my customs, my culture, my family. I would give nothing for the spirituals that I grew up with and the stories of surviving in the wilderness and flourishing in spite of oppression and so on and so forth. So 
So I, I don't walk around constantly aware of those things. So it came as a, it was a little bit of a shock very early on to realize, oh, okay, we're, our experience really is very, very different. And he may not even know about features of my experience intellectually. That does not mean, however, that he doesn't know about discrimination because he grew up in a little town in um, Washington state where his family was the only Asian family. And he grew up with the slurs and so on and so forth. And then, of course, when we became aware that coronavirus was here, on the one hand, African-Americans were and still are dying disproportionately from coronavirus. And at the same time, due to our lovely uh, administration in large measure, Asian Americans are being discriminated against as the bearers of disease. There is a tendency among communities of color when we gather together across communities, an unfortunate tendency for us to then compare who's more oppressed. It often, it prevents us from building solidarity. I think on the one hand, yes, we do need, and I think, you know, there, there are two problems with this. On the one hand, in order to demonstrate allyship, sometimes, you know, folks will say, oh, well, I understand what it is to be African-American because I also experienced this. Well, maybe, but it's not quite the same. But And then African-Americans will push back and say, no, you can't possibly understand my experience. Let me tell you about, you know, redlining and so on and so on and so forth. It is important for us to recognize the different ways in which we experience suppression. But I think that when we get into these comparisons and you try to compare things that really aren't amenable to comparison, all of the energy that could go toward creating the kind of society that we all want, those of us who inhabit those activist spaces, instead goes toward establishing our own credibility, virtue signaling, defending our our space, defending our right to have space alone and so on, apart from each other. All of those things are good and they're necessary, but when they take up all the space in the room and they take up all the energy, I think they do us more harm than good. So the interesting thing that happened in, in my own marriage was that in my, and especially in the last small town that we lived in, this was in Geneva, New York, once Cliff became aware of the kinds of challenges that I have with policing in this country, he immediately, we didn't talk about it further, but the next thing I knew, he was on the board that was working to get the police to agree to a community compact. So that he never did experience and still does not experience what I experienced with the police, but he could see, oh, okay, this is a problem. I believe in a just society. Here's something that I can do about it. And it did not require him to understand my experience fully. I should not have to dig into my own experience of being discriminated against in order to say to someone who talks about the Chinese virus and this and that and so on, no, this is wrong. We act in this country very often like empathy is the only impetus toward moral action. It's important, but you don't have to feel what someone else feels to do the right thing. All you have to do is take what they're saying seriously. And I think that's a step we need to move to because, you know, if we think that empathy is the only impetus toward moral action, 
then we put the burden of, on people of color and other oppressed peoples to bear their pain to us before we'll do the right thing. <laughs> and it's not necessary. If you see someone in tears, you say, what's wrong? If they tell you what's wrong, you take them seriously until, you know, you have reason to do otherwise. You don't have to sit there for two hours and have them bear their pain and open their wounds and show their scars and sit there. Or, you you know, you sit there and watch the video of them being, you know, the officer's foot on the neck over and over again and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, share it on Facebook so that you can raise your consciousness and maybe, maybe you, you see it enough times you'll go in and address policing in your community. It shouldn't take that. It shouldn't take that. So I think that we often have to learn as people of color who need and want to be in community with each other. And let me broaden that. We often have to learn as people who experience oppression in its various forms, whether we're people of color, whether it's gender related oppression, whether it's ableism and so on, to take seriously the experiences that are presented to us. And then to, to treat others, not only as we want to be treated, but to treat others as they want to be treated. And to expand the circle, create a society that makes space for all of us. And not have that work be contingent on understanding the nuances of each other's experience. Oh, I want to like stand up and do the wave. <laughs> Uh, amazing. I mean, I think that you see that experience, like you said, it's not just with race, it's with so many other cross sections of society. I think often about kind of uh, the Me Too movement a little bit, you saw sort of similar dynamics in there as well. The law really does put the burden on the victim. Yes. Legally, the victim has the obligation. And so then there's the question of re-traumatizing people. And mm -hmm. I think what you said about us not like tr really understanding that the work should not be on the work of somehow justifying or proving the experience. I mean, that's just how things remain the same because if people need to be re-traumatized in order to get justice, it's like you have to live your life. What are you going to do? You know? Exactly. So earlier on when we were talking, you had mentioned how, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, the moment that we're in has kind of accelerated certain changes that you're seeing at the University of Chicago or in your role, perhaps, that mm -hmm. might have taken much longer or the pace would have been slower. And with that sort of as a backdrop, I wanted to ask you, you know, it's really hard not to feel despairing in this moment. <laughs> I mean, there's so many crises going on all at once globally and in this country. We have a scary election coming up. We have the racial strife, the pandemic. It's just, my joke is that if a bunch of Hollywood producers had gone in and pitched a, a movie idea called, of all things, 2020, right? Hindsight being yes. 2020. And they pitched this idea, they'd be like, I'm sorry, that's totally science fiction in La La Land, even for Hollywood. Exactly. Right? Nobody would buy it, but here we are living it. So <laughs> it's really easy to fall into despair and to feel kind of, scattershot in terms of like there's so many layers of priorities for all of us individually 
and it can feel kind of futile. Like, what do we do? And it feels like such a marathon. Like, all even one single of these issues would be systematic, long-term, a marathon, not a sprint. There's so much to do. Everything feels urgent. So yes. this is a very big question. <laughs> but I'm wondering, how do you counsel people or what your sort of compass says in terms of how do we find hope in this moment? And how do we sort of balance caring for ourselves and our families and the immediate needs of what we have to do? And also keep in mind, like, the world is burning, we need to, you know, participate in certain ways. I think I should really begin with the honest um, admission that sometimes I feel despair. I mean, I, I just do. And it's interesting because there are some moments when I feel a, a sense of deep meaning and yes, I'm in the right place at the right time. And there are other moments, sometimes in the course of the same day, when I feel just absolute despair. When I look at one of my favorite places to live, uh, the, the California Bay Area, and the sky is red. I mean, you know, I look at, I have a picture on my Facebook page of the cathedral where I was ordained, and the sky is red around it. This is Grace Cathedral on Knob Hill. Knob Hill is usually clear. There's no fog. And so everywhere I look, it seems like something is, something has been affected. I love church. I love music. I love praying. I love gathering in community. I love standing at the front door of Rockefeller Chapel and greeting people when they come in, as well as when they leave. And none of that is available to me right now. And I have an obligation, I feel, to keep people safe and to keep the doors closed right now and to only open gradually. So ironically, all of the things that I usually draw on for my own sustenance aren't there including the virtual coffee shop. You know, I had to get, <laughs> including the real coffee shop. So today I finally said, oh yeah, well, at least I could have a virtual coffee shop behind me so I could sort of feel like I'm in one of the funky urban spaces where I like to hang out. <laughs> so not even that's available. And then, you know, when the mayor shut down the, the uh, lakefront bike path, it's like, okay, that's it. I'm just doomed. There's nothing. Um, because usually if I, uh, if I hop on my bike, that changes things. Fortunately, I went on a bike ride before this conversation, so I'm feeling pretty good now. So I have, you know, I have moments throughout the course of the day, sometimes throughout the course of the week, where I will go from having a sense of focus, having a sense of purpose, having a sense of value as a professional to absolute despair. When I experience the absolute despair, one of the things that keeps me going is my reading of Camus. And I love his philosophy of absurdism, that when things do not make sense, you still resist because to resist the absurdity of that horrible situation is to live. And so here he is able to find hope in the myth of Sisyphus. And I admit I'm probably interpreting Camus through the father of black theology, James Cone, who loves him for the same reason. So that in those moments where I don't have a sense of meaning, purpose, value, deep spiritual connection, wonder, wisdom, I choose life anyway, and I choose to resist. And thankfully, have, I have learned, even when I'm in the midst of those moments, that it's going to pass. And I've learned to tell myself, this is where you are now. This is so not permanent. 
And eventually you're going to get out of this. And so this is, you know, just be where you are now and get through this and do it and just do what you have to do and find whatever way you can to do what you have to do. Hopefully that will be something that's healthy, like hopping on a bike and not something that's less healthy, <laughs> like, you know, finding my favorite quad ale and saying, whoops, I had one too many. <laughs> I have those struggles just like everybody else. And I think it's worth it's worth my saying that because I think we need to be honest about this. This has tried all of us. In my healthier moments and my clearer moments, reading helps me. Reading poetry, reading prose. Um, as you might know, I'm a fan of Langston Hughes. I've been reading Langston Hughes since I was a boy. I haven't feel a deep spiritual connection to, to Langston Hughes. So reading poetry... I have a deeper appreciation for the theologian James Cone than I ever have. When I first read him, I thought, I don't understand why he's so angry. Now I understand. And I can I can connect not only with his early anger, but with his later description of the trauma that was beneath that anger. And his final book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which is his crowning achievement. And even he said so before he died. I mean, what a life to be able to just look back on your own work and say, yes, and this is where I started. Here's my crowning achievement. Then he writes his biography and then he dies. We should all be so lucky to have such a, a neat looking arch. <laughs> arc, rather. So in the course of the day, because this is such a challenging time, I find that I really have to live moment by moment. I have to be aware of where I am in a given moment. And if I find myself unable to work, unable to concentrate, faltering and so on, I have to be, I have to turn the compassion toward myself that I show other people. I tried to get a very basic administrative task done early today that's been hanging over my head. It's just a very basic thing. It's a matter of taking some information that some of my staff gave me, combining it with my own and turning in an annual report. It, there's nothing complicated about it. And I found I could not do it. And I said, you know what? I love misty days and I love biking, I'm going to go for a bike ride rather than sit here and do nothing. That was one of the best things I could have done. It was one of the best bike rides that I've had in a while. You know, Everything was working like it was supposed to. That was enough to get me through the rest of the day. And I had to trust that eventually I will, I always do, I will get to that point where I can do the work that needs to be done. Thankfully, graduate school taught me that as well. <laughs> It's nothing like having to write a dissertation that'll, that'll teach you that eventually, if you persevere, you'll get it done. Drawing on those features of my spirituality that are still there, drawing on my memories, remembering that I have access to recordings of just about everything that I miss hearing in the chapel, some of which were actually in the chapel. I have access to all of those spirituals that I grew up with that are just kind of in my soul. And now you can look on YouTube and find some old country church where the folks are singing some of those complex acapella harmonies and so on and reminding myself of how important that is and, and immersing myself in that again. But I, I really find that I have to, you talk about a compass, I find that I have to constantly recalibrate and look at that compass and find north. And it really is a marathon. Someone described, I can't remember the article, I think it was somewhere in the New York Times. Oh, I know what it was. There was an article talking about how 
Californians feel about these wildfires. And he said that here in the Bay Area, we feel like we're running a marathon at sprint pace. Oof. That nailed it. That's exactly what it feels like. You know, it's it, you know, if you run a marathon, you feel like you can pace yourself and you slow down and so on and so forth. But no, we're running a marathon at sprint pace. You know, it reminds me of those days when I'm out of shape on the bike and I'm spinning, 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 and then I have to I have to stop spinning and coast and think, how come my legs won't go any further and so on. So it's more like that than you know, just kind of the oh yeah, everything's in tune and the legs are pumping and the heart is pumping and the breathing is right and so on and so forth. There are so many days when we're just kind of spinning, 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 not going anywhere. You know, I've got to spin in a low gear because I don't have the energy to. <laughs> You know, you know, my muscles aren't working right and so on. And, oh, look, this is aching and so on and so forth. So I think being aware of the fact that I'm in a moment where I'm off track, being aware of the fact that what I am experiencing right now is despair and not not doing what I so often do, which is, am I crazy? That's kind of worthless. <laughs> it doesn't matter. What I'm experiencing right now is despair. Okay, what do I do about that? Do I need to talk to someone? Do I need to go for a walk? Do I need to do some other task that's a little bit easier? Do I need to throw myself into this task until I can do it? Do I need to log off Facebook as much as I want to see how my friends are doing? Can I go a night without watching the PBS news hour? Since I already know how it's going to start with coronavirus. <laughs> and then something will be said about the president. And then something will be said about the economy. It's like, I know what's going to be said. Can I go without watching it tonight? What's on my bookshelf that I used to read, you know, that I need to rediscover? I find that almost every moment of the day these days, I've got to look at the compass and recalibrate and remember what it feels like to flourish. And if I can find those moments where I remember what it's like to flourish, like when I was, you know, just kind of wondering if Skype had virtual backgrounds and I ran across this thing that looks like, I was like, oh, I used to do that. <laughs> just remembering what it feels like to flourish, I find is enough of a compass to help me recalibrate. Remembering what it feels like to get off the bike and take a shower. Remembering what it feels like to sing in the chapel or to hear a certain piece of music. Remembering that there may be another way that I can access it, even if I'm not accessing it in the spaces that I'm used to. And if I can hold on to that, and then hold on to the ethical imperative to create a world where other people get to flourish. That's how I find North again. Often these days, it's after the fact. It's after I've had the conversation with someone and I get off the Zoom meeting and I realize that was meaningful to them or they send me the thank you note or something like that. And then I can say, yes, okay, I'm back on track. So we really have to take what we're doing one moment at a time in spite of the <laughs> in spite of the fact that we're sprinting through a marathon, which is not how one runs a marathon. And yet here we are. It's my hope that this podcast would be the kind of resource that I wish had existed when I was younger and growing up. What advice would you give your younger self to help him on his journey? 
Oh, that's an that's an easy one. Only because someone just asked me this the other day. <laughs> Take your experience of the world seriously. One of the downside of growing up religious is that I grew up in a tradition that taught me to interpret my experience through a book of revelation, through through the Bible. And that if my experience didn't line up with a particular interpretation of the Bible, then there must be something wrong with my perception of my experience. Or more likely in that tradition, I was going the wrong way or, God forbid, going to hell. What moved me beyond that was taking my experience seriously. That's what I had to do in order to come to terms with being a same gender loving man. That's what I had to do in order to come to terms with liking a style and a mode of worship that was very different from what I grew up with. That's what I had to do in order to relieve myself of the burden of being a particular type of minister in an inner city church like where I grew up and loving university chaplaincy, which is very different. So I would definitely say take your experience seriously. It's valuable. And I think it informs not only how you live your life, but the kind of questions that you ask. It informs the kinds of questions that you ask as a scientist, not just in the humanities. It informs the kinds of choices that you make when you're performing and how you understand repertoire and what you hear and how you interpret a piece. Our experiences, our social location, our culture, those are all immensely valuable. And especially if you are somehow outside of whatever the norm is supposed to look like, take your experience seriously. It's a gift, not only to you, but to those around you. Thank you to today's guest, Reverend D. Maurice Charles. Visit my blog, isitrecessyet.com, to learn more ways to cultivate your creative courage and to subscribe to my mailing list. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Is It Recess Yet? on Apple Podcasts and iTunes and share it with a friend or write a review and rate this podcast to help build the Is It Recess Yet? community and to find like-minded listeners. Thanks so much for listening. Be well and see you next time.